Coming up next, Maudib. It means mouse in Iraqian. It hops. It hops, yeah. Hey everybody, welcome to The Book Editing. Today we are still talking about Brandon's new favorite novel, Dune, Frank Herbert's immortal sci-fi classic. Actually, we're you, some might argue just starting to talk about it. We were so excited. Brandon was so excited to talk about Dune last week that we just couldn't contain ourselves. We gave lots of random thoughts about it. Yeah, but this we didn't week, even get to context. We didn't even get to context, but this week we're going to get to context right after I introduce us. I'm Nathan. I am your emperor. There's Brandon. He is your. What? You're making me some kind of. Just wondering what you're going to come up with for me. He is your Baron. Yeah, yeah. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Jake, of course, Maudib himself. Going to kill you all. He's going to kill us all. (laughs) He sure is. (laughs) Actually, Jake's little sister will stab me. This is, no, she this, stabs me with a gom jabar or something like that. The gom jabar, whatever that is. <laughs> no, the gom jabar is the box that he puts his hand in. The fear is the mind killer box, isn't it? When she kills Baron the, von Fatty, the... she says you just got poked with a gom jabar or something like that. Yeah, the gom jabber, I think, is what <laughs> the gom jabber. You just yeah. got poked with the gom jabber. <laughs> poked you right in your gom. <laughs> That's the other thing. When we were talking in the last episode about about these things, they can't be so easily. Is it? Gom jabber? Is it gom jabar? Is it? I was I was imagining like, yeah, everything true. with is it Ar- Arabic. Arakis, Arakis. I think you do have to imagine it with a kind of an Arabic like. Yeah. So gom jabar is what. Gom jabar. It's a gom jabar. Yeah, that's oh, that's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Do I have to shake my shoulders as yeah. I say it, like you just did? <laughs> yeah. Brendan, <laughs> Brendan put on a veil. <laughs> he started shaking his shoulders. Do a little bit of shimmy. <laughs> yeah. Shimmy shimmy cocoa puff. <laughs> All right, so have we introduced us all? That's actually Jake. Did I say your I'm the other guy? Yeah, no, Jake's the other guy, famously. His name is Jake, and- He's that guy. He's that guy. Uh, Brandon, of course, is your scholar who's a baller of reading. Jake's pastor. He's a pastor of master of reading. I'm a humble and obedient host. Your Himalayan host. <laughs> I'm your Himalayan host. Uh, Himalayan. Yep. Huh. Brandon, of course, you are going to provide, and you've been chomping at the bit. You've been gum jabbering. He's been- Over here, yeah. He's been shooting off his uh, six shooters. Yep, yeah, like a madman. Just, just waiting to do this. Yeah, Brandon loves the story. He loves this novel. He loves talking about the life of Frank Herbert. You really just can't stop him. Brandon just came in here and said, did you guys know Frank Herbert was on a dune when he thought of dunes? And we're like, yeah, Brandon, we, we've read Wikipedia too. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. Brandon, now is finally the time. You don't have to hold it back anymore. Uh-huh. With your love. That's Frank Herbert right there. (laughs) Looks looks like Tolkien's melting. (laughs) All right, Brandon, take it away. Give us some much needed context. I think I just gave us all the context we needed. (laughs) That was mean. That's not a bad picture. It's not a bad picture. He doesn't look that bad, folks. (laughs) He does look like a stuffy kind of Tolkien-esque figure, though, in that particular picture. A little bit like a, also. He looks like an... 
older was, gentleman in a black and white photo. He looks a little bit. Like <laughs> if, if you mean that all of Tolkien's photos are also of him being old, and, it looks a little bit like black an and white. Yes. yes, I guess it looks like a little bit like <laughs> He's an a insurance stuffy older salesman, gentleman. though. <laughs> right, it's a little bit of an insurance salesman there. Yeah, yeah, oh insurance goodness. salesman. Yeah. People at home can look for themselves. He, he looks like a guy. He looks like a very nice man. You would um, definitely want him to babysit. Now, Brendan, go ahead. Well, I'm really glad that you saved the context for this episode because this is not going to be a stellar context. No. <laughs> In fact, Nathan, I think you can help a bit. So a little bit of bio on Frank Herbert. Um, he, was, he lived between 1920 and 1986. So he was born, he died right after all of us were born, pretty much. Yep. And he's best known for a book that he published in the 60s. Yeah, that's a better picture. That's actually a pretty good. Oh, that's a cool picture. Let me see that. Yeah, he looks awesome. Yeah, he looks like a red pill kind of guy there. That's cool. Not a very flattering comparison, but yeah, he he looks like a man's man. That's what I meant. So not a red pill guy, really. It's like Civil War General foot over here. Yeah, Civil War General. Yeah. He just needs to be. Ernest Hemingway wants to be as manly as this guy. So I guess they just chose the nerdiest picture they could possibly pick for this one. So. Yeah, probably. Look at this one. Oh, that one's cool. Yeah. Now he's, now he's like a communist. Communist. Um, he was always. Intellectual. Uh, yeah, kind yeah. Of Soviet. Yeah. Different. 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 <laughs> in yeah. this picture. I don't know how many times I need to say the word different. Anyways. Oh, he's a younger guy. Oh, that's a Soviet av- agitator kind of looking guy right there. Uh, I love he's, it. he's at his typewriter and he's going to pin something to undermine the. This is quality the, podcasting. The uh, whole worlds are flowing through his fingers right there. Brandon, just look at it. Yeah. This is quality podcasting. Yeah, describing right pictures here. that people can't <laughs> see. We're looking at pictures online. People can't see any you of You know, it. much like a great author, like for example, Frank Herbert, we're painting a picture inside people's minds right now. Yeah, we sure are. Uh, <laughs> Dude, the copy of Dune that we gave people is super cool. It is. They should sign up for $50 a month. Yep. And you'll get, get great copies of things. Too late to get this Dune one though. Sorry. Yeah, it is, but it was a cool copy of Dune. It almost makes me want to buy... The other four books in that series, even though I don't individually care about them. Any of it. As, yeah, as I had much. the same thought. Like, I just want that com- uh, completed collection because they're cool. Looking. They're really cool. They yeah. do look neat. Mm-hmm. Is, but you said Neuromancer is not worth owning, right? Neuromancer was really influential and it's interesting to read. Neuromancer created a little word, uh, spy- cyberspace. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this word. No. No. Uh, Neuromancer... What does it mean? Created the concept of... Can you define it for me? I'm not going to find cyberspace for you, Jake. It's, Is that because you can't? Maybe, yeah, exactly. One day you'll understand. Uh, it also invented the concept of a little place that people jack into called The Matrix. Oh. Yeah, Neuromancer, very influential, not just on movies and TV and stuff, but on uh, like society, man. But one of the most interestingly prophetic sci-fi books you'll ever read, also full of decadent sex and garbage hmm. don't read it but there you go that's my tiny little review of Neuromancer. are the later dune books full of that sort of thing uh remind me does the first dune have anything kind of questionable along Not those really. lines i mean there's all the concubine stuff but but you don't have any scenes no yeah there's a he's gonna i mean he sleeps with chani or whatever yeah that's, Im- that's implied there's some weird stuff Aaliyah, the girl in the book, is Paul's little sister or half sister or whatever she is. Is she a full sister? The abomination. She grows into this weird, oversexed, half crazy person, and there's some stuff there. 
yeah, I would say the answer to the question is yes, there is more explicit sexual content. I wouldn't say it's out of line with what you'd get in your average sci-fi thriller. It's not, I wouldn't have thought not to read the books as a responsible adult Christian male, but your mileage on that may vary. There's the answer to your question. Thanks. And that's context. Yeah. You can read those books, Brandon. Okay. 1920 to 1986. Yeah. So he really didn't get established as a writer until Dune. That was his first big thing. So he was already in his 40s by the time that was published. But he had had some writing up before then. Um, He grew up in Tacoma, Washington. Didn't have an overly happy childhood. I do know that I read that somewhere. I don't know if that affects anything or adds any flavoring to his later works. But there is that to keep in mind. In fact, I think he ran away from home. And lived, yeah, right here, he went to live with his aunt and uncle in Salem, Oregon, because he did not have a very happy childhood. But one thing he did do, though, is he was a journalist early on. He um, worked for the Oregon Statesman, and in one of his positions, he was actually a photographer. And I'm pretty sure that he went and he worked for, during World War II, until he was discharged, he worked for the U.S. Navy. Mm-hmm. So, but as you mentioned earlier, so one of the things, is just as far as background for this novel goes, is he was, he said that he was doing this reporting on some dunes, I think, over in Arizona or New Mexico. Do you remember where? I don't remember where. But it was, he was supposed to do, he got involved with ecological studies like that, and he was doing what was going to become an article for a a newspaper, I think maybe The Atlantic. And he took way more notes than he needed to, but these notes would eventually provide the basis for what would interest him and what would become Dune. And he, he was... Interested in a wide variety of things. He was a journalist, so he got involved with ecologists, and he was interested in ecology. He went to University of Washington, but he never graduated. But still, he was he was interested. He was a man who was interested in a wide variety of things. I read somewhere that he was interested in linguistics, and apparently, though I didn't see any evidence of it in this novel, so maybe in later novels you see this. But people were saying like he knew enough about language to be worth like a PhD and a half in linguistics. I saw very little evidence of that. Yeah, but somebody claimed that that was the case. Like another sci-fi writer said that this guy had enough knowledge of linguistics to have like another PhD and a half. In other words, he was respected within the community as being the kind of sci-fi writer that has a sort of deep knowledge of science that goes beyond just like the cursory interest. So in fact, the, the dedication to this book said to all the dryland ecologists out there, right? And so, but it was that project in particular, and I think that you could find where that happened. Let me see. Well, it was Oregon, actually. I was way off, but it was the Oregon Dunes, and this was supposed to be something that he was doing for, well, this particular thing doesn't say the Atlantic. For some reason, I really have the Atlantic stuck in my head. I don't know why. But anyways, something else that he had been doing along the same time is he was writing short stories. So he had written a couple stories for some pulp magazines earlier in his career, but around this time is when he began to write for what was called Analog, which mm-hmm. I believe was the... Asimov's magazine, yeah. really popular and, and influential. And so because he had written a couple of stories for them, they actually accepted to publish his Dune story serially. And so he p- published them in Analog and... Really just like Dickens then. Yeah, just exactly like Dickens. And this would become... If Dickens could have upped his game a little bit, yeah. Except more compelling, yeah. 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 And so this would is what would become the... Uh, Let's rub this in a little bit more. <laughs> if Dickens could have learned to write, yeah. then... <laughs> then he would have written Dune. Yeah, the parallel would be perfect. If tell a story that... If he become more of a... Um, more of a sellout. Um, 
<laughs> if by sellout you mean somebody that cares about his audience, boring and- me to tears. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, what was I saying? <laughs> oh yeah, the, what was? Yes, the- sir, Dickens. Analog, just analog, like Frank just Herbert, like Frank Herbert. Yeah. <laughs> so he was publishing that. So he publishes serially. That's right. And so it, the. It wasn't the complete shape of the novel yet, but afterwards he would try and get some publishers interested in this to publish it, and <laughs> it took a while. No. Wait, <laughs> you wanted publishers to publish this? Yeah, publishers to publish. Oh, sorry. You wanted yeah. them interested in it for the purpose of publishing it, not for <laughs> Believe it or not. Believe it or not. Amazing. Well, what's funny, what's funny, I, I found this detail. He you tra- found a detail. That is funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I always, I, and I, maybe I'll get this one right. Um <laughs> He tried it like 20 different places. One editor actually said, this might be the biggest mistake of my life, but I'm going to pass over this. Really interesting. Yeah. So, and turns out- It was the biggest mistake. Was. Yeah, because for all of my feelings about this book, this is the highest um, grossing sci-fi novel of all time. I think it's just like right behind the Bible as far as sales. So it's it's the his Bible is not sci-fi, Brandon. Well, I mean, as far as <laughs> wow, <books. laughs> the Orange Catholic Bible. I, I, I did maybe. not mean to make that weird conflation. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so let's 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 just uh, take a moment here. Brandon's an atheist <laughs> who it's coming out now, guys. Sorry, <laughs> who places Frank Herbert on the level of Dickens, or right. well, slightly above, sounded like, but yeah, just slightly above. Now, Brandon, you did bring your copy of the Orange Catholic Bible, the famous oh, I Bible did, from yeah. Dune. That Look, it even has to. that weird paper that I couldn't under, quite understand what in the world was supposed to be going on with that. <laughs> I don't even remember the paper. It's like, yeah, ten, yeah, some, some sort of filament paper. Like, you, you weren't oh. supposed to touch it or it would crumble and... Yeah, it has like a secret message on it, right? Nathan, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Don't ask me. Where was I? Oh, yeah. And so finally, he got a publisher interested. <laughs> in publishing it, though. In publishing it, yes. I want to be clear on that. <laughs> Not in catching and killing it, but in publishing it. And what's really fun is this this publisher up until that point was mainly known for producing uh, automotive like service manuals. And that is fun. I'm going to go home and tell my wife that. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, they got into the fiction game <laughs> with Dune. <laughs> hey, when, you know, when the next great thing the next dickens sends you his novel it doesn't matter what you publish you publish it yeah, exactly right that's true the first dickens really because was dickens a dickens i think herbert was dickens dickens was more of a dickens, dickens, dickens. was more of a proto herbert i think yeah oh wow he was like the first herbert yeah yeah makes sense david copperfield's just kind of a sandworm <laughs> our new t-shirt <laughs> david copperfield is just kind of a sandworm <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'm gonna write that down. Yeah, you should write that down, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> Cut to Nathan wasting a bunch of time making sandworm, <laughs> sandworm shirts Arch. that nobody wants. Wearing a little top hat and monocle or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, what was it? Uh, David, Copper. David Copperfield is just kind of a sandworm. Is just kind of a sandworm. Anyway, Brandon, you just made our day with some fun facts so uh yeah weren't those interesting facts guys (laughs) yeah go on that was interesting so the book became successful what can i say i don't was it immediate success nathan that i don't remember off the top of my head i believe it was i mean yeah no so it never made quite enough for him to just make his living as a sci-fi writer that actually didn't happen until later in life when david lynch got a hold of the movie 
And he became like a superstar famous because David Lynch was making Dune into a film. But then he died a year later, I think. So, because he died relatively young. He was, it was in his 60s. Yeah. So, but after Dune, he would write some others in the Dune series and became a cult classic and very respected within the sci-fi world. He got to the point at least where he was able to, even though he wasn't like extraordinarily wealthy off of his, because sci-fi at the time wasn't a genre that you became wealthy off of. It's not like today. Like Neil Gaiman had that introduction where he was writing a little bit about this. Sci-fi is very different for us today. Back then, it, it was still a fringe art form. And so- Well, also, let's be clear, even today, like there's probably five people that got wealthy off of sci-fi, you know, Rawling, Joe Rawling, Neil Gaiman- yeah. Maybe it's 10, but you know, you, you, I wouldn't necessarily advise it as your career path. But even then, there are probably more sci-fi writers today that at least can make more of a comfortable living than even he was based on the sales of his first novel. Sure. There's a large market for it now. And so, but he did become respected. In fact, like he got to the point where he just, his just writing a review for a young sci-fi writer could make their career. And so he, all that to say, he was respected and not only respected, but he was known for being extraordinarily he was, they thought of him as a brilliant person, particularly in the way that he could build ecology and his philosophies and his politics and stuff into this world that was very rich and um, had a lot of depth to it. From my understanding, like I don't know a whole lot about the sci-fi genre, but my understanding is this was kind of a game changer Absolutely. and provided the context for what we have today is what we know as sci-fi, like Star Wars and things like that, where you have this world that has a whole, it feels like there's a depth to this world. It feels like there's a reality to this world outside of just that immediate universe. It feels like there's a whole history to it. Well, I would, I would, I would compare it to Lord of the Rings. All those tropes, you know, wizards, dragons, elves, whatever, they all existed. Tolkien didn't invent a single thing, but he did put it in a rich three-dimensional feeling world. Yeah. And I think that Herbert kind of did the same thing with a lot of sci-fi tropes. Just, you know, it's not like any of this is particularly new, but he, he put it in a context that really fired people's imaginations. So in that sense, he's kind of the father of what we would consider modern sci-fi, mm -hmm. right? And you can see a lot of the sci-fi that we know today coming out of it. And like I said, Star Wars. Well, yeah, what that sentence really means is George Lucas read this book. I mean, that's all there is to it. George, the desert, the worms, the, there's all kinds of stuff that if you watch Clone Wars, they're trade, the smugglers are trading in spice, like. It's yeah. pretty, it's pretty blatant. Well, and you get into Rebels and then you've got basically a Dune tribute episode where, you know, a handful of old retired clone troopers are on a crawler hunting for sandworms in a Dune country. Right. Yeah. You it's know? just, I, mean, I think they'd be the first to, Star Wars people would be the first to admit it. I mean, the other thing, just the idea of used tech everything looks battered and old in star wars and that's something that you kind of get in dune this is a lived in universe it's not shiny you you look at it, the cover of an old pulp magazine it'll be like a buxom babe getting dragged off by an octopus monster but then there'll be like flash gordon in his shiny space suit with his brilliant ray gun and everything the aesthetic is very shiny and new and positive and what could the future possibly bring kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas mm -hmm. the aesthetic of Dune is well, and that's very lived in and old and one of the things, one of the only other things I really wanted to talk about with context was, and was this difference between um, what people call hard sci-fi versus soft sci-fi. I think you're probably just as able to speak to this as I am, Nathan. Mm -hmm. So my understanding is hard sci-fi would be the guys who are really interested in the mechanics of science. Mm-hmm. 
like the actual ships and how they fit together and making it as accurate as possible. If they could travel at light speed, what kind of uh, engine design and ship design would we have to have and how would it be? Star Trek probably falls more into the hard sci-fi. Well, it's almost uh, an easy example for people. Maybe the book Jurassic Park is hard sci-fi because I think Michael Crichton is really interested in how you could clone dinosaurs. Steven Spielberg, eh, his movie's kind of hard sci-fi, but also it's let's just get to a world with dinosaurs. Yeah, and so we'll have a little cartoon in there that handles all the exposition for the how for anybody that cares or that wants to yeah. be sure that stuff makes it in from the book. Right. Well, maybe a better comparison point is Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World. We're just going to find ourselves on a continent with dinosaurs. That's not hard sci-fi. That's right. soft sci-fi at best, if not just pure fantasy. Yeah. And so soft sci-fi would be, people can probably read between the lines here, but it's sci-fi that's more interested in the ideas, more interested in the characters, more interested in the questions like, what if this world actually existed this way? Mm-hmm. And it's not as in, it's interested in the, just the hard science behind it. Never Let Me Go would be a very soft yeah, sci-fi exactly. book, for example. No interest in telling you how this world got there, no interest in telling you how the clones were made or being accurate in that sense of the word, but still offering you a world that has some sort of relevance to us. Yeah. And that's the point that Gaiman makes over and over again, which I think is useful, is that all sci-fi, and even if it's set in the future, it always speaks about its time. It always speaks about the interests that that time had. And so like Dune, even though it is soft sci-fi, would be what I would think it would be classified as, right? Mm. It straddles the line. I think people have argued for both because, yeah, it is soft sci-fi because none of its stuff is remotely plausible. It also, especially in the later books, likes to sort of pretend that it's actually extrapolating from modern stuff but but yes okay yeah well at least his first book seems to be softish yeah it's just a and fantasy I, book really a point i was gonna make like a few minutes ago is it when you have these hard terms like this about literature it's always difficult to just like so students always will get confused about like the lines between things and you're like well that's because no author is just like saying well i'm gonna write hard sci-fi now and right. it's not gonna have any softness to it right it's not like you have to limit yourself. So you're going to have some hard mixed in with soft occasionally. It's just the way things are. And if you get caught up in that sort of, if that sort of, if those sort of definitions trouble you, then you're probably the kind of person that would write hard sci-fi. So right. anyway, <laughs> exactly. Um, if, if it bothers you, then you're writing hard sci-fi. That's probably a pretty good rule. actually. So, so you have also the difference between hard sci-fi and also speculative fiction in general. Mm-hmm. And that would be like 1984. You take a world that's like, what if this world were different? Yeah, yeah. Like, what if this one thing had happened differently? And that falls more into the speculative category. And what sci-fi speculative writers in general, what they want to do is take this world and use it to help us understand ourselves, like our position. Sometimes it's cotton candy where you, they aren't trying to do that, right? It's just there to entertain. Like maybe the some of the, that guy on Mars, whatever his name is. John was. Carter on Mars, perfect yeah. example, yeah. It's just, no, he doesn't care about like, what if Mars really were this way? It's just trying to find a fantasy setting so you can escape for a while, right? Mm-hmm. While 2001 A Space Odyssey, though, is more interested in like, what if this were the case, right? And it's trying to use that to then actually show us something and tell us something about ourselves. Right. Even if the author's not doing that intentionally, like he's not wanting you to change anything, it's still, that's the interest, that's the driving interest behind these sorts of stories. Because generally, if someone's interested in sci-fi and they're not just interested in the John Carter sci-fi, they're interested in it because it's it speculates. It asks these sorts of questions, yeah, absolutely. Right? So that you can then use that to help yourself ask interesting questions about humanity, about ourselves, about the way we live in the world. That's why sci-fi is of interest 
And I think that's why sci-fi doesn't interest me in the end is because I just don't like... You already know all the answers to all those questions. Yeah, I already know all the answers. Yeah. No, it's just that those questions don't always interest me all that much. (laughs) Or I've already... I'm able to ask those questions without fiction having to ask them for me. I don't know what it is, but maybe we'll come to terms with that. Well, there's a degree to which some of that stuff doesn't interest me just because I'm a Christian and I do already know the answers. Like a lot of Star Trek episodes where they're like, in this society, we kill people and when they get to be old, whatever shall Captain Picard do about this and i'm like uh, i know what i would do i'd be against it yeah and so and that's really that sort of what if question i mean it helps you make sense of a lot of sci-fi that at least has lasted and been popular mm-hmm. even the space trilogy by lewis is kind of a what if i mean it paralandra definitely is a what if right mm-hmm. yeah but his what ifs are all theological you know he he's yeah. not hard sci-fi he doesn't want to ask like he doesn't How care does what Mars is But that's, like the, that's or, the point yeah. is that the what if, the speculative generally isn't necessarily as hard sci-fi, right? Right, so exactly. It's, I think the speculative generally will follow more. So like Fahrenheit 451, that's not hard sci-fi, right? No, so, not at all. Um, even though he is, he did kind of predict things and Gaiman makes the point that like things that end up being only aimed at predicting the future generally are not as quite, a, not quite as interesting anymore because they're not asking those big philosophical mm-hmm. questions. And if sci-fi is lasting there, I don't know. I found that introduction helpful because he just made the point that generally for sci-fi, characters aren't as important. It is those big questions. Mm. And if those sorts of questions are what you want, that's why I think that actually probably people who end up liking sci-fi probably would end up enjoying Dostoevsky more than they would Tolstoy. Because mm-hmm. Dostoevsky is more interested in big philosophical questions than he is in just the art of fiction and poetry, right? So I think that we just see kind of the divide that happens, like... Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's a species of sci-fi and speculative fiction and fantasy that's most interested in evoking a feeling of of wonder. And, yeah, and that's what that's I fine. tend to like. You know, and that's more uh, horror the, would generally fall into those. Yeah, that's why horror has always been my favorite. I think if there's a, if there's anything good in my instinct for liking horror, it's because often those stories evoke a sense of otherness and wonder. That's yeah, that's fun. But even something like Dune, you can have kind of the wonder of space travel and of this vast desert full of this weird nomadic people and things like that are fun. That's the context that I wanted to provide. I don't think I have a lot to add as far as sci-fi. I will add that the movie Lawrence of Arabia came out in 1962, and I don't think you can overstate the importance. Dune came out in 65. Lawrence of Arabia came out in 62. Of course, based on the story of Colonel Lawrence, who was a British colonel who was part of the Arab uprising. And as he presented himself, and certainly as the movie presented him, was this kind of quasi-mythic messianic figure who lived among the nomadic peoples of the desert and helped them achieve independence from the evil Ottoman Empire. And people were really taken with that story, with that movie, with the autobiography of Lawrence. and. You could argue that this is just a riff on that, certainly influenced by it. In the same way that Avatar is just like, let's take Dances with Wolves and let's throw some sci-fi trappings. This is kind of... Blue people. Yeah. In some ways, this is just Lawrence, especially the second half Blue of the book. People. Yep. Blue cat people. Blue cat people. Yeah. This is just the second half. Once, once Jessica and Paul are in the desert, this is very much Lawrence of Arabia, uh, which is, I suppose, problematic now because it's a, it's a white savior myth or whatever but all right so we need to get rid of you now right yeah well nathan um i don't really think i asked for your help on context generally actually did no 
Oh. I don't remember asking, so that's kind of my part of the show, but I can see when I'm wanted and when I'm not wanted. Well, I can see that too, and I can say it too, Brendan. You're not wanted right now. Yeah, fine. Well, guess what? I don't have to stay. Jake, do you want him to stay? I've never wanted him to stay. You guys can talk about your- I've been waiting for this day. You you guys can have your own little nerd club. Talk about doing all you want. Yeah, well, at least our nerd club won't smell like stale cigarettes. (laughs) Yeah, at least I'll- Plus, it'll be fun. Yeah, Yeah, plus it'll be fun. Yep. Fine. Get out, Brandon. Just Just get out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Don't let the door hit you, nerd. Glad that guy's gone. I just called him a nerd. <laughs> 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 that was a that was a skit, folks. We were just having fun well, there. Call it a skit. Well, right? yeah, it wasn't. Really. <laughs> that was a well developed <laughs> piece of writing that you just heard. Uh, <laughs> we went through through several drafts. No, no, no. Uh, Brandon has to go pick his daughter up. Who you know? I think the other kids are. I don't know. What she's a girl. Yeah, she's a girl. Brandon's daughter is a girl. You le- you learned it here first. But me and Jake are going to keep talking because we want you to have a whole episode today. So, Jake, what other thoughts did you have on Dune? <laughs> we kind of covered the basics last I know, time. so it's hard to actually come back to anything. I had fun with it. Yeah. I mean, there's not really a lot more, there's not really more to it than it's fun. It's not like there's a lot to talk about in terms of insight into character the characters are pretty lame well maybe we could talk about this brandon didn't think it was fun so what is it that you're looking for what kind of fun was it it's marvel movie fun in a sense but it's or star wars fun but marvel it's basically like marvel's the, you like the characters actually that's okay, why I you like made a fair, fair point okay so it's star wars fun and it's george lucas star wars fun it's not even clone wars fun no it's like portentous people saying quasi-mythic dialogue yeah and people you care about because the story tells you the story cares about it but there's nothing that you really it's a fun little world with fun little trappings and it's got a story that's going somewhere and that's driving you forward it's got some good fun action to it mm-hmm. and, but there really isn't much more to it than that no you know, Brandon doesn't have the patience for it because it doesn't give him anything more. There's no literary nourishment really to yeah, be have here. Or moral nourishment for that matter. There's really no nourishment. It's just candy. Mm-hmm. And it's candy for the kind of person that likes fun story in a fun world with some fun action. So, Is there moral uh, MSG or whatever you don't like, listener? Is there is is there something, stuff in here that's bad, you think? <sighs> Yeah, there's some bad there's some bad stuff in it. Uh, I'd be hesitant bef- to. I thought this might be a book that I would turn around and give to my 12 year old son, and I decided that wasn't something I really wanted to do. It's not wholesome. It's that. weird how the begin. Well, actually, in the book, doesn't somebody say like the beginning of things is a delicate matter, and the end, the beginning and the end, make a big difference. And the fact that this book actually ends on the last line that it it, it does sort of casts a weird Paul yeah. moral Paul across the book. Like, I don't want this to be a book about concubines and like yeah. George or George Herbert, <laughs> George <laughs> Herbert, <laughs> the great poet <laughs> for some reason thought that you know, Frank Herbert, like for some reason wanted me to walk away with that. He wanted my final thought to be, isn't it neat? A society where you pragmatically don't marry a, a lady and you know, and, 
kind of almost mm-hmm. a biblical king kind of a way. You marry some other lady, but then you're in yeah. love with this one. Yeah. Cool, huh? It actually makes the book feel like if the book ended a little differently, I think I might actually, it actually might feel more wholesome. Mm-hmm. I, I think that stuff actually kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a dumb ending. It's a dumb ending. It, like that last, it's just a dumb last line. Yeah. Like there's little things like that through the book, but what you need to end is with like, and Paul was ascendant and everything was cool and yeah. lasers shot out of his fingertips and the jihad was about to begin. Yeah, anything like that would have been a better ending. I would argue that ending happens. Maybe Jake's reading Dune Messiah. I don't <laughs> want to. Sp- I don't want to speak I, for you. I'm not reading it. No, no, I know. I'm saying you. You wouldn't. Oh, maybe read it. I'm saying. How... I'm saying if that was the ending of this book, maybe you would have been compelled to read. Oh, right. Yeah. The next one. Yeah, I think. I think that might be true. I was. Yeah, it took so much wind out of the sails. Is let, let the air out of the balloon. However you want to say it. Whatever metaphors you want to mix. I was ready, I was geared up as I was approaching the end to go ahead and order Dune Messiah on Amazon and I eventually decided not to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that ending really, it's deflating. Yeah. After the excitement of like, like when, when the Emperor and the Baron are on the planet and suddenly they hear that the, this desert messiah is coming for them and yeah. all the armies are amassing like that's yeah and then you have the sandstorm and all that stuff that's really cool that's awesome yeah it's like that's one of the best action set pieces i can remember reading in a book i can't wait to see the the, the movie, movie version adaptation of, of it right yeah. yeah it's gonna be cool you know i think i told you at some point herbert is actually a less imaginative guy than george lucas mm-hmm. but he's a way better writer and storyteller in that sense yeah just that much more development and polish if he'd brought that level of effort and attention to like the prequels yeah we would have had awesome prequel movies but then i never thought i'd hear myself say these words but funnily enough what you would want is george lucas's moral sense yeah i know right at least he's gonna give you good evil evil. a hero a hero a hero worth believing in maybe he's gonna try at least right and yeah I don't know. Herbert almost feels like a proto George R. R. Martin or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. Where he's just like, not only is he not interested in questions, well, it's, it's not that he's not interested. Heroes, he's, right? he's, he's very interested in the question of heroes and he wants to say there's no such thing. Yeah, they don't exist. Insofar as you want to worship a hero, all you in- do is enable the Hitlers of the world. Right. And we need to abolish hero worship. Yeah, well, my good friend uh, Ben, not Ben Solzer, but another Ben who loves the Dune novels said, because I, I read a couple of the other ones and I said, boy, these are kind of downers. And he said, yeah, the way he put it, I thought was nice, which is Frank Herbert's big trick is that that character that you loved last time, they're Hitler now. <laughs> like every yeah. book is like, like in book two, spoiler alert, we're going to pick up with Paul. And, and he's going to become Hitler. Well, right? his jihad is going to have swept across the galaxy, killing millions and billions. And Paul's going to feel bad about it. But how do you stand against the wheels of time and the engines of war and the well and spoiler alert i guess people can the sensation of a messiah figure yeah and that's what you need and paul ends up walking into the desert that's how the, the to book. go and exile himself he exiles he, he's blinded it's very messianic even his death he blind he's blinded in some kind of a attack and then he walks into the desert as this lone figure and that's how the novel ends and it's actually a pretty interesting is a downer ending but it's an interesting ending for if you just take dune messiah to be the yeah. f- the fourth part of one book mm-hmm. but then we're gonna get 
Paul's children and we're going to get generations and every time the whole, like all Herbert really has to say is, oh, they seem nice before. Well, things are outside of their control and power corrupts and people are crazy for charismatic heroes and these things take on a life of their own. But he also just seems to love the idea of, I guess you'd call it pragmatism, just the idea of a good leader has to be willing to kill who he needs to kill and do what he needs to do to position people and things where he needs to position them. And I mean, I guess that's some of the appeal of the first Dune book. It is interesting to watch Paul figure it out with the Fremen and yeah, all that kind of stuff. And it's even more interesting, as I think we were saying last time, to watch Leto try and figuring it out. Mm-hmm. F- try and figure it out before yeah. the Harkonnens spring their In trap. Him. And it's fun to watch the Harkonnens miscalculate. Yes. You know, be so corrupt that they they end up setting traps that they fall into themselves. Oh, uh, let me ask you this. I know it's been a while since you've read the book, but yeah. even when I was reading the book, I have no idea what Baron Harkonnen's plan was or how it made any sense. He's going to... He already owns Arrakis. He has a controlling interest in the planet that creates the spice. I'm sure some nerd that's listening to this will explain all of this if you can't. But he already controls Arrakis. But instead, he's going to but he's going to leave Arrakis yep. so that Leto will come there. Yep. And then he's going to attack and kill Leto. Yep. What problem is that solving that wasn't created by leaving in the first place? They have a feud. And so he's got to eliminate all of the Atrides or Atrides or however you say the name. I don't know. They have a, a thing where they're at, in some kind of blood war with each other that goes back generations. So that he, he doesn't give a bigger explanation than that, I don't think. Just finally, one day, the Harkonnens will beat the Atrides or Atrides family. I think it's Atreides, actually. At least that's Atreides. how they say it in the movie. Well, somebody told me it was Atreides. Uh, that could be, too. I so, don't pretend I don't, to be an expert. Know. It was the same Ben you were referencing. I thought that's what he said. I could be wrong. I'm happy to be wrong. <laughs> you, you I love being wrong. Yep. But yeah, anyhow, I, I, I really think that's it. He just wants absolute supremacy over any... And it's part of his plan to... It, doesn't he want to become the emperor? Yeah. He's all angling to become the next emperor if he can get... Leto out of the way. So yeah, I guess the unspoken reality is that he can't just have his like Leto's too powerful on Caladan or whatever the first planet is called. If he just attacked him there, it wouldn't work. Yeah, and the Emperor was in in league with him because the Emperor recognized Leto. Leto was becoming so big that the Emperor thought he might get steamrolled if he didn't. Yeah, and so the Emperor can use a Harkonnen who already has a prejudice against an Atreides or Atreides and get rid of someone who's problematic, use the Harkonnens to do it as cover, send in the Imperial troops, and then they just have to do it in such a way that they don't cause a rebellion where everybody's too freaked out because the Emperor is going to kill anybody he perceives as being a threat. Right. In the meantime, Harkonnens weaving his own plot to use all of this to undermine the Emperor or something like that. It's just a weird, twisted... But That's he... my memory of it, at least. It, it has been sometimes since I read it, but... He he didn't understand the natives. Always a fatal flaw for Always these kinds a of fatal flaw. bad guys. Yep. He underestimated what they were capable of. And overestimated what he was capable of. Mm-hmm. Did you like all the 
the mystical mumbo jumbo, the the Benny Gesserit of it all, and the the breeding and the abomination and the Benny Gesserit stuff was fine. The now we're on LSD or acid trips or whatever stuff got a little tiresome to me. It did, yeah. So the first time it was fine. First, I like the times, character. Yeah. I think the character of his sister is a cool character. I like her being the born idea. born with all the memories of the mother and reverend or reverend, reverend mother mother reverend um yes and yeah being a super smart adult super assassin that also happens to be in the body of a little kid that was fun that's one of the places where the sequels really drop the ball they don't do a lot that's interesting with her basically she just gets possessed by because she has all the memories i don't even remember how the war works but somehow she has the memories of baron harkonnen and her which means she's effectively possessed by the Harkonnens and just becomes a villain and actually has Paul killed eventually. He wanders into the it desert. It would take her to do it, right? Yeah, exactly. She and he can both... Well, he's, he's wandered in the desert and then come back as a blind prophet. So she has the prophet killed and we're supposed to kind of understand via implication that it's Paul. Or maybe they actually say it. I don't know. There's a lot of cool ideas in those sequels, but Herbert gives up any desire to write an exciting suspenseful story with action scenes and conflict and stuff like that it's basically just a bunch of grab bag of cool ideas and people expounding on his philosophy on his ecology and his yeah all that stuff i mean i feel you know like we could criticize the sex politics or the character building or some of that stuff but it's just like what'd you expect what did you expect yeah yeah it's better than most sci-fi novels. Yeah, I guess the only other thing that I would say about it is, and maybe this was worth saying, I had some idea that it was going to be super dense. Mm-hmm. And especially even from the beginning, the idea that it was going to be hard to follow and hard to remember because he kept throwing so many terms and made up crap out there that I thought it was just going to be a whole bunch of nonsense words that I had to try to remember. And I thought it was going to be super and yeah, dense or whatever. And and it it wasn't. No, he's pretty good at doling out information and Yeah, and circling back around and repeating and repeating and repeating until Yeah, you can kind of trick yourself into thinking that it's dense if you're not used to it when you're first reading it because you're like, Oh, I need to remember that, I need to remember that, but then you realize actually you don't have to remember that. You don't have that. to remember anything. He's gonna make sure you remember it. Yeah, he'll, he's ex- come he'll back explain around, it to you explain. when you need to know it. Yeah. He also had cool tricks, at least in in this one. I mean, you're more than halfway through the book when he just sort of casually throws off something like the second moonrise or the shadow of the second mm. moon or the, the you know something like that suddenly there's this new detail we've been on this planet for a long time and you just now realize that oh this planet has two moons whoa that's interesting yeah that's cool yeah i mean if brandon was here he might say well if you have something like that up your sleeve why don't you actually use it to you know do something evocative or but it's super evocative the way that he throws it off in certain contexts. I mean, sometimes it is at least, you know, right. it's like, oh, here's a little juicy detail that I'm just going to let it slip out incidentally here. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't think he's bad at what he does. I mean, as our resident person who's actually read some stuff in the genre, like most sci-fi novels are worse than this. I realize that's not much of a... You know, that's damning with faint praise, but there's not a bunch of really obnoxious, like your average sci-fi novel, especially from that era, there's going to be such blatant, annoying, 
sexualization of the female characters it'll mm-hmm. just be like she walked in and sh- by the way she had breasts you know i mean that's about the level of yeah what a lot of these writers you just feel them salivate over their let me describe what they looked like right and well and all, the dumbest trope that lots of people have made fun of before me is the one where it's written from the woman's point of view and she's like hmm my, my breasts certainly are firm and bouncy today I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure women always think of <laughs> think, think thoughts like think that. thoughts like that. Yeah, mm. feeling especially supple. Right. Yes, <laughs> my legs are very long today. How nice! Uh, it's just ridiculous and immoral, but also very stupid. Yeah. So you don't have to put up with a lot of that. Herbert's sex politics are weird and off-putting, but at least they're not that. He knows how to write action, which is nice, and he knows how to write sentences, which is nice. Well, I mean, a lot of these guys are. Like what Brandon thinks he's finding in Herbert, Brandon's not here to defend himself, but, you know, Brandon wants to say, well, this guy's not really trying to be literature. It's like, I can show you some guys who really weren't trying and you just didn't understand the grammar of like the only possible thing you get out of these guys is the sci-fi ideas and there's... Yeah. No, I mean, Herbert has a style and you can say the style is bland and not very literary, but it's a style and it's not offensive. It's not distracting. It's not... It stays out of the way. It stays out of the way, which I think is a feat in and of itself. It stays out of the way of the ideas. It's not something that you have to fight through in order to get what's good. Right. And a lot of those later 20th century sci-fi writers, I mean, if people out there are nerds, I might say uh, Roger Zelzany or uh, Larry Niven, the style's actively getting in the way. It's like, oh, this is really annoying. This dialogue sucks. This is, I mean, it's a little bit like what people don't like about the prequels this dialogue is not just bland it is actively making it stupider herbert usually doesn't do that he's competent and smart and knows what he's doing and is achieving the effect that he wants to whether you like the effect or not is another question yeah he's not showing it like the poetic promise that rolling shows right no so it's not like you can even get angry with him for selling himself short he just does a good job of well, Rowling has really good passages. She also has a lot more actively bad passages right. than Herbert does. Like Rowling will occasionally get in the way with her, you know, the adverbs that she always wants to add to he said querulously and she said tremblingly and like Rowling can actually, Rowling's a good writer, but she can also be her own worst enemy. Be her own worst enemy. Yeah. George or George Herbert. Wow. <laughs> George Herbert, on the other hand. <laughs> master of language. A master of language. Yeah. yeah. And Frank Herbert competent (laughs) (laughs) reasonably competent that's the stamp we put on yep reasonably i I think the only other thing i wanted to say about all this is it really made me appreciate tolkien again and the way that he uses the hobbits it made me realize how savvy it is like aragorn kind of is like a paul atreides or a leto he is this wooden stick figure knight kind of a you know stoic character without a lot of wit or color to him but if you have a little everyman hobbit there observing the whole thing and kind of feeling like you would feel as a person. If you have an every, if you have a handful of everyman hobbits that feel stupid, feel like they're always causing trouble, feel like the idiots on the, on the trip with the grownups mm-hmm. who get to grow to the place where by the end of three novels, they're able to restore order in the Shire and command troops and whatever among their friends that's so cool and fun it goes a long way and it just helps 
if you have, I forget what the name of the protagonist, Nick, if you have a Nick Adams, is it Nick Adams? If you have a Nick to Gatsby, you know, if you had a character that was yeah. telling Paul's story, Paul's best friend, who was just a dork and never understood everything and was there to just be confused and- Let's up- get it from Gurney Halleck's. Yeah, exactly. Well, that would be awesome. Yeah. But it made me appreciate Mary and Pippin, actually, because yeah. what we have is a series of, like, just like Gondorian politics can get a little old, Arrakis politics can get a little old, but what we never have is like a, a Pippin to just be like, this is getting old. I'm going to go sit and look out and wonder what's happening with my friends. Yeah. Having that person tag along on Paul's adventures mm-hmm. would, would go a long way since he made the, the interesting choice of not having Paul just be that. Yeah, kind well, of an everyman. I mean, man, this guy's starting to feel more and more self-important. He was just a kid yesterday. Why has he got to be all pretentious and crap? Right. Well, and that's the thing that the Dune sequels completely, like this book maybe has that a little bit, you know, Jessica becomes a little bit of that figure for a while in the desert before she becomes some kind of a messianic woman figure. Paul can be that Mary. character a little bit at the beginning, but the the sequels completely lose touch with ever having anyone that can have any kind of normal perspective on this stuff. And mm-hmm. that, that really hurts them. There's just got to be an anchor point for us as readers, like yeah. somebody to tell us how to feel. And, and I think Herbert doesn't want to do that. Like, I think he finds it more interesting to just say they were all a bunch of psychopaths, psychopaths and pragmatic weirdos at best. And if you want to play the game of Thrones, then that's who you have to be. I haven't watched much of Game of Thrones. You haven't watched much of Game of Thrones, but we know there's any Game of Thrones. We know there's a dwarf that everybody likes, and we know there's like a a dragon lady that everybody likes, and those you know Game of Thrones. In other words, even as as much as it's doing this kind of thing, and I have watched it and read it enough to know this, it has entry point characters. Yeah, and those entry point characters go a long way, and it's actually interesting to me that Dune. I guess Dune basically kind of has it, like. Paul sort of is that, and then Jessica sort of is that, and Leto. There's always somebody there to be that just enough, I guess, but... Well, much more than any of the sequels, it sounds like, right? Yeah, well, but okay, maybe what I'm saying actually is the reason that Jake was never going to read this book, except for for a podcast... Is I didn't care about anybody that was left behind. Yeah, exactly. At the end of the novel, I didn't care about any of them. And if that that guy was in the novel, probably this this has much more mainstream success. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be a difference maker. I would, if Tolkien said, now here's the story of Samwise Gamgee, it's like, sign me up, mm-hmm. you know? Sure, yeah. Okay, you ended that, but all right, like, I'm here for Sam. I'm, I mean, honestly, if Tolkien said, here's wanted, the advent- here's the gardens of Sam Gamgee, here's the boring. Well, yeah, here are the adventures of Merry and Pippin as they trounced around the Shire in their armor mm-hmm. and, you know, everybody's- or off-putting to everybody and- <laughs> yeah. <it's- laughs> Everybody admires, respects them, and also kind of hates their guts. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd know, read that. Yeah, I'd read that. Yeah, you don't have... I'm not reading any fanfic about it, but nope. if Tolkien <laughs> had something to say about it, then... Yeah, insofar as he did, and he did have... It's interesting. Yeah. It's not my favorite part of those books, but it's interesting. Yeah, it's just interesting that Herbert just... I guess he just wasn't interested. He's also just not interested in his characters growing that much. He wants... Like, Paul always... Paul... He needs to blossom, but he always contains everything that he will become within himself. He doesn't really, maybe I'm wrong about this. He doesn't really change, does he? No, he doesn't change or transform. He just finds it within himself, you know? Yeah. The only He has to take a risk here and there. The risk always pays off for him because he's the chosen one. 
it's in that sense you can you can say Rowling made some of the same mistakes with Harry, but yeah. But what Rowling doesn't usually give us is a well. I guess she does. I don't know. In Herbert, you're always going to get even in the early going in the novel, you're going to get characters being like this Paul boy. He is different. His eyes are piercing. His intelligence, you know, people talking him up. Mm-hmm. Harry has to. He's climb more. She's always putting Harry in the position of, and we talked about this in our Harry Potter episodes. It's interesting the way that she makes this sort of universal superpowered protagonist that can't be defeated always feel like he's on the outs and bullied and hated by everyone. Mm-hmm. In that pandering sense of, it doesn't matter who you are in school, if you've ever felt bullied or oppressed or on the wrong side of things, but secretly felt that you were awesome. Mm-hmm. You connect with Harry. Well, that's literally everyone, even the cool kid at school. Yeah, exactly. Or the bully. Or the, oh, especially and, the bully. And especially the bully feels that way. Mm-hmm. So. Dune is, it almost feels like it's wish fulfillment for bullies. Like, what if what you were doing was awesome? awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and necessary. And necessary. And nobody understood it but you. Yeah. What if you lived in a world, <laughs> or maybe what more dangerously what it's saying is, guess what? You do live in a world where everyone's a bully and you've just got to be the coolest the bully. The best bully. Yeah. The chosen bully. Yeah. Is that what the wish fulfillment? I mean, the sm- you have to be the smart bully. All the other bullies are dumb. Right. They can't see things as you need to be a, the enlightened bully. So trip some acid, baby. Yep. This is very much a book for people that like to read Dostoevsky and pat themselves on the back for how much cooler and how much more they they get it than other people. Because that's definitely who Paul is. Oh, I don't know. Should people read this book? Would you recommend it? Yes, with cautions that it's not great morally. Mm-hmm. And you're not really going to get much out of it except for a fun story and a fun world with fun atmospherics it's sort of a nothing a fun nothing if you need a fun nothing which sometimes you do this is a fun nothing to have i don't want to undervalue the book but when you put it that way i almost would say boy there are a lot easier shorter better fun nothings that could be your fun nothing like i also agree with that statement I, I think where this book, I'm glad that I've read it. Yeah, where it gains some points is if you're any kind of a genre lover or a genre completist his, or a historian yeah, or Yeah, the historical value of it, like the artistic, the, the value of, I mean, for me, half of the fun of it was like, oh, that's where Lucas got that. Oh, yeah. that's where Lucas got that. Oh, that's where Lucas got that. Oh, I like, I like to, I'm a to the sources kind of guy anyway. Mm. So I like, I like having been at the source. Or at least I was a to the sources kind of guy. Now I'm just like, eh, let's just have the actual good fun version of this and not worry about the boring proto version. Mm-hmm. But this isn't... This isn't the boring proto can't, version. To, to call this the boring proto version of Star Wars is to really sell it short. That's not true. No, this is... This is a, a the good, good version of Dune. Yeah. And it's no wonder that Lucas wanted to rip it off. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, what Lucas added to it was ingenious which is laser swords and wizards well laser swords and wizards and evil yeah but really what he added was number one good and evil and number two a sense of humor and boy dune does not have a sense of humor humor. at all yeah let's just bring in i mean yeah let's take all that's cool about dune let's add good and evil let's add fathers and sons 
let's add laser swords and let's add funny. Yeah, and, and we better understand that if we're going to be throwing around terms, made up words like Maudib and stuff, if you can do it with a wink, it's going to go down a lot easier than if you uh, have a bunch of serious people standing around talking about Maudib and Kwisatz Satarak. And the reason that we all laugh at those terms, I don't think that they're any worse than a Tolkien oh, term or a... Star Wars Star terms Wars. are so bad, but they don't take themselves this seriously. I guess that you're right. That's a point that probably should have been made earlier. Darth Sidious and General Grievous, General it's, Grievous and Greedo and it's stupid. Know, it's stupid. But in a movie called The Empire Strikes Back or Attack of the Clones, you can you can be a little stupid. You're supposed yeah. to. You're inviting it, and you're that's that's part of the point is to have fun. It's fun. Yeah. Let's not overthink this. Right. That's what it says. But this is all like this is epic and deep quiznatch. Sazerac. <laughs> yeah, Cuisinart, Sazerac. Yeah, it, it, that is that is what defeated me a couple times of trying to read this novel. If it got down to it, it was the lack of humor. I, I think. I just don't like things that take themselves too seriously, you know? I mean, I, th- I think people that listen to our podcast probably know that about me at this point. And uh, it's just like, man, is, is that whole Gam Jabbar scene or whatever, the scene where he puts his hand in the box and everything. Yeah. It's cool and everything, but it's like these people are taking this ritual that's fake that doesn't happen so seriously. And it's hard for me to connect, you know, like you got to give me an in Tolkien does it with cute little hobbits that feel like everyday stout British farmer or factory worker types. And yeah, Marvel movies do it with quippy modern snarky sensibilities and Mm -hmm. there's a million ways to do it, but Herbert doesn't do it. And so he just has to survive on pure narrative momentum and, the energy of what he's doing, which he, to his credit, does. I enjoyed this novel. I enjoyed it. I would recommend it, I think, for some... If, if you think it might be interesting, I mean, hashtag the Lincoln quote or whoever said it, The you know, if this is the kind of thing you like, then this is the kind of thing you'll like. Yeah. I bear Brandon, as much as we were making fun of him, I bear no, Brandon no ill will for just saying, this isn't the kind of thing yep. that I like. At all. No, if if there's a kind of thing that you can forgive, <laughs> it, it is the kind of thing that's a quality representative of its genre that you can still walk away from and say, it's just not my thing. Right. And have it be completely forgivable. This is that. Yeah. Right? This is making no effort to reach across the aisle and if say. You, if, you, if you were to say that about, say, Tolstoy, we say, well, there might be something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Except, you know, I understand you don't have the time or energy to invest in 1500 pages or whatever. Yeah. That I get that with Tolstoy. This just isn't for me. I have a hard time with that. I think Tolstoy has something for everybody. Yeah. I, I think that's, I, I agree hundred percent. The other reality that's going to change around the time we release these podcasts is there's going to be a movie. And if it's good, if, if it's as high quality as it wants to promise that it is, then it might be a better use of your time to just watch the darn movie. I, there's no particular there's reason nothing to experience the book is going through to give you, the literary form. Yeah. There's nothing intrinsically valuable about the literary experience of this. All If all the ideas and world building and fun, and it's not even like, it's not going to spoil your imagination of it, right? right. There's nothing spectacular right. to have. Oh, no. Now I'll only ever be able to think of Paul as Timothy Chalamet yeah. or however you say Oh, darn. Name. That'd be a horrible yeah. lot. Oh, no. I thought the sand would be a slightly different color. Yeah. Oh, no. I imagined the worms to be bigger or smaller. Okay. They might 
ruin your idea of the sandworms, which actually don't get all that much description anyway. So, right. but yeah, whatever. You're already picturing sandworms from Tremors or Beetlejuice or whatever anyway. Yeah, if, if, if this actually ruins your idea of Dune, then I want to say you probably spent too much time thinking about yeah. Dune. But, yeah. but I know a lot of people love this and think it's great and I don't build, bear them any ill will either. Yeah. I think it is who it's for. And hi, Lucy. Brandon is standing outside of our studio. He's got his daughter. He just picked He's her waiting up. waiting for us to be done so he can come back in the room. Yep. You got a resolution for the episode? What's going to happen to you? What's going to happen to you, Lucy? You don't? Oh, she's shaking her head vigorously. Are you being shy? She's not normally so shy. Oh my, Lucy. Mm-hmm. It is a pretty it scary, is a scary room. room. Two, ar- two arguably three scary people too. Lucy, I thought you were my bunny rabbit. Lucy, I thought you were my bunny rabbit. Lucy, I thought you were my bunny rabbit. Can you say hello? Can you say hello? Oh. <laughs> hey, Lucy, are you my bunny rabbit? Yes. She said yes. She's yeah. nodding. So I think your big sister's going to come and get you, and you guys are going to go oh, on a cool. little adventure together. That'll be fun. That'll be fun. Is Alyssa coming for you? Yeah. That'll be nice. It says Rock Key 1, Rock Key 2, Dune 1, Dune 2, and Hamilton. Do you want to ask him what does the fox say? You should ask your daddy what the fox says. Like that song we always sing? <laughs> yeah, yes, like yeah. the song you always yeah, sing. Yeah, like the song. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> the one you yeah. always sing together at home during family devotions. Yep. Yeah. Sure. That one. We put on our Fox uniforms and dance mm-hmm. back and forth around the house. When your dad Fox switches uniforms off the, feed, the Zoom feed for uh, church Gosh, on yeah. Sunday during <laughs> not, COVID. And, yeah. What oh. does the Fox say, Lucy? What does the Fox say, Daddy? <laughs> That's a, that's Alexa singing that. Alexa sings that. Alexa's pretty good at singing. Alexa is good. So did you guys get all the Dune resolved? Yeah, Brendan, how many uh, sandworms out of 20 would you give to Dune? Oh, man. Man. Like, my personal experience, of course, wasn't that high, but... How many sandworms as far as, as far as, like, sci-fi novels go that I've had the pleasure of reading, <laughs> 15. 15 sandworms, wow. Out of 20, yeah. Out of 20. But your personal experience was how many sandworms? Uh, around 10. 10, so like 50%. Just like completely in, indifferent. Okay. So. Yeah, so what sci-fi? We've read Wrinkle in Time. Dune, uh, I don't, I, in other words, I don't think my reaction determines how good something is. Yeah, mm-hmm. subjectively speaking. Yeah. Where, how, how do you guys rank Wrinkle in Time, Dune, and Ready Player One? What do you guys give it as far as, far as sandworms? We uh, haven't yet. I haven't actually asked. Oh. <laughs> I, I now feel weird because I was going to, if he asked me out of 20, go ahead, why don't you do it? Yeah, uh, Jake, uh, how many sandworms out of 20? Well, I was going to say 10, but I know I liked it way more than Brandon did, so. Brandon got a chance to kind of set the. Yeah. He I mean, I, I figured that sandworms, that's, that's 50%. That's not a great score. Well, the sh- okay. <laughs> I guess if we're thinking, though, if I limit that down to five, then it's two and a half. That is a little high. So eight. I'll say eight. Eight sandworms. Okay, all right. Then I'll go with ten. I just don't, I'm not, I really enjoyed reading Dune. I enjoyed the book. I'm not prepared to tell anybody that they should actually go and read it. I don't care. The only person that should absolutely read it is a genre historian or someone who really wants to understand where this stuff comes from. Yeah. If you want to understand the making of Star Wars, if you want to understand the history of sci-fi, whatever, then you should read Dune. Otherwise, 
you can read it and it'll be fun, but who cares? There you go. Would we rank uh, Dune? Uh, folks, I'll give it I'll give it 15 sandworms. I really liked it. I- I'd say if you're the kind of person who's not interested in reading Dune, for you, it's zero sandworms. It will not do anything to take you and convert you. Yeah. But if you think you might like it, then you probably will. Would we say Dune, Ready Player One, <laughs> Wrinkle in Time? Is that yes, how we... That's the word. Is that the ranking of sci-fi novels we've read? Oh, yeah. By far. I mean, I can at least see that Dune is... Of those three sci-fi novels. De- Dune is decently written. It's fine. It's just... I mean, I can give it eight sandworms and not feel bad about it because Duke Leto. There's some fun no, stuff. Zero worms would be for wrinkling time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's yeah. that's that's it's the sort of zero. Of and it's not that sort of garbage. Duke Leto kind of saves it from being lower than that because he actually, I, I do, I've been thinking more about it since I left to go get this little one. But I think that he, his disappearance from the novel did kind of end my interest. Mm-hmm. Well, I understand story-wise why that had to happen, but- yeah. Yeah, it's just, just too bad Paul wasn't more of a son to that character. I just wasn't interested in the sort of philosophical questions he was trying to ask through Paul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yep. Uh, well, guys, we got to shout him out real quick. Lucy, you want to help us do some donor shout outs? Do you yeah. just have to yell? Just yell. Ready? Ah! Ah! Can you do that? There that was go. good. Okay. You have to say it after I'll say it and then you, we'll all yell. Okay. Robin and Rhonda and the Lovebirds. Ah! ah! The Artful Anthony Dodger. Ah! Uh, uh, you go, ah? Uh? <laughs> Little Anthony Cigar Store. Ah! Uh, uh, the Immortal Chelsea E. Ah! Uh, uh, Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Ah! Uh, uh, Lily of the Valley. Ah! Uh, uh, Andrew Nestor the Lovebirds. Ah! Uh, uh, the Keith Master. Ah! Uh, uh, see if you can be faster than Pastor Jake. <gasps> I would race you. Davis Money Man Trucking. Ah! Uh, uh, I win. John and Jill, little baby Max. Ah. Uh, uh, oh. Jane and Katie, who are cold and love cheese, and also C.S. Lewis, including two of faces. Go. Ah. Uh, oh, you oh, beat you, me. You got him. All right. You guys all just say lots of Oz while Wait, I go through can you this. pause just a minute? Sure. Hey. Hello? Oh, you're here? Okay. I'll bring her out to you. All right. All right, folks. Brandon's taking Lucy away. Bye, Lucy. All right, Jake. Let's do a considerably less cute call out. Okay, here. I'll just try to yell ah, ah. <laughs> in as cute a manner as possible. Uh, I don't know. Ah! The Keith Master. Ah! 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 Oh, no. Consul Prime Adam. Jeremy the Master. Lord of the Lord of the Lord of the Lord 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 the the Camp the Kings who are warm and love Tyler, the Keeper of Eternal uh, Darkness, Lord, the Keeper of Eternal uh, Light, Cold Steel, Cody, uh, Jack and the Librarian, Barbarian, uh, John Bobadil, Bob David, uh, Captain Janelle, his mate, Saxophone, uh, Ally, Ally, uh, uh, Eli, the uh, Scarlet Pilgrim, the other Saxophone, uh, Ally, so, Dad, uh, Sub, Danny, Ryan, the Terror of Texas, and Eric of the Cream uh, and Crimson, who are cold uh, in the, who are stuck in the cold, uh, please send cheese. Ah. Uh. <laughs> hey, everybody, we hope you enjoyed our Dune episodes. Uh, support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash the booketing. Leave us a five star review on your favorite podcast app location. And yeah, Christmas is coming up. I think uh, next week we'll be back with our kind of best of the year kind of stuff that's coming up and we'll release our new book list. So that's coming up. 
should be a lot of fun and head over to sanity at the movies for a discussion of the dune movie assuming it's come out by now actually i'll just cut this part out if it hasn't Mm-hmm. <laughs>